Welcome to Word Balloon, the comic book conversation site. This is John Suntress. Paul Jenkins understands the business of genre fiction. The writer began his career on the editorial side, working with the creators behind the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Since becoming a freelance writer, Jenkins has turned out a prolific body of hit stories for Marvel Comics. He makes time for creator-owned projects like his Vatican-based mystery, Revelations, from Dark Horse. And now, through his own production company, Jenkins has begun writing stories featured in top-selling computer games like X-Men Legends and The Hulk Ultimate Destruction. Our conversation begins discussing the return of Paul's internet column, Flogging a Dead Horse. Glad the column is back. Uh, oh, slugging a dead horse. I think we're about to kill Nijarama. <laughs> 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 We've done it before. We just absolutely destroyed everybody, you know, so I figured uh, we'd bring them down, you know. It looks irreverent, so I'm looking forward to yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. We were going to do this mad sort of travelogue and show what it is that we do with the film, you know, that kind of stuff, and uh, also just write that random crap, you know. <laughs> Talk about the movie for a second. Is this a first-time effort directing uh, by Kevin Eastman? Um, yes. Yes, it is. Uh, Kevin's got an incredible amount of knowledge about it. And uh, in a sense, I mean, you know, this is a conversation I've had with a lot of people in Los Angeles, that everybody is at some point a first-time director, you know. And uh, <laughs> if we were to go, you know, sort of put our skepticism aside about whether first-time directors work out, you can look at a bunch of first-time directors and see that they're doing quite well, thank you very much. Uh, Rob sure. Zombie would be a great example. You know? Oh, absolutely. Did Kevin produce Fact 2, that uh, second heavy metal movie? Uh, yeah, he did. He, um, you know, I don't know as much about that as uh, Kevin does, obviously, sure. but as much as I know is that Kevin really was instrumental in sort of making it happen, writing the film, you know, make, doing, doing all of that. So if you think about it, you know, Kevin has a, a good background in film and... Uh, and and you know has done this kind of stuff for a really long time he's been he's a very very savvy guy you know i've known him for about 18 years now i think and uh, 17 years and uh he is surprisingly savvy about the way that that town works and things that you need to do in order to get a film made which mm -hmm. is, is extremely difficult you know you know you'll see some of that in the column that's cool and the title of the film uh fistful of blood <laughs> Is it? It's kind of like Fistful of Dollars with Zombies and Vampires. In it. That's kind of what I figured. That sounds cool. That's great, man. You mentioned that you started with Kevin, and you go back to the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle days. Yes, I do. The, the black and white days. Um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. When I first came to America, I was, I was sort of you know, meandering around and uh, <laughs> playing music and trying to make my way that way. And when you say you're a musician, it means that you're waiting on tables. You know? <laughs> and... Um, I can't remember what job I was doing. I think I was working in a horse farm at the time or something like that. Or, or maybe a hardware store. And I know I was waiting on tables, and I actually met those guys because when I was waiting on tables, they would come down and sort of eat uh, where I used to work. And I got to know them, and uh, some of the guys in the studio were going to do a, an album cover for us. So I got talking to them, and I got to sort of hang out with them a little bit and, and all that. And... One day I was playing soccer, a recurring theme here, and I, I broke my leg playing soccer, and um, mm -hmm. I couldn't work at what I was doing, you know, and the band was having difficulties and all that kind of stuff, and so um, I went to them and I said, you know, you guys are, like, really busy. I think they just signed this toy and sort of TV deal, the TV stuff had been going a little bit. Okay. And I said, uh, well, I'll come work with you. I'll do the comics. And they went, yeah, okay, they fell for it, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so I became the editor on the comics, and I was at 21. And uh, next thing you know, everything went crazy. Just, you know, licensing and merchandising and, you know, it was already beginning, but it went absolutely nuts. We, we had this tiny little hole in the wall. There were three employees. We had this tiny little office. It was absolutely, really, just insanely small. And uh, before you knew it, I was on the phone 
doing deals and licensing and, you know, no one was trained for this stuff. <laughs> <laughs> but I think it's neat because unlike so many others in the comic book business, for example, a guy like Paul Levitz, yeah. who started as an intern, became a writer, and then became on the business end, yeah. Yeah. you had the opposite direction. Oh, absolutely, yeah, completely the opposite. I, I started on the business side, and, uh, um, you know, I did that for a number of years. That's what's so funny. People don't realize that I was an editor for quite a long time, you know. Not only with uh, with uh, the Turtles, but also then Tundra as well? Yeah, with Tundra, and then with the uh, quickly failed Majestic. Yes, uh, that was fun. <laughs> and another mid-90s company, huh? Uh, yeah, there was, yeah, there was another one, too. There was another one called Scoreboard, actually, that sort of uh, asked me to come work for them. And, you know, they didn't pay me either. It was great. <laughs> well, I, I'm glad you're back on the writing side because uh, great stuff. I'm, I'm really enjoying Revelations. Good. Uh, I, I think that's a, it's, you know, a novel place, certainly, to, uh, to set a comic book uh, mystery. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I figure I might as well go ostentatious for a while. <laughs> Let's see, what have we got? You know, we'll do a hydroelectric dam. No, that's not going to work. It's outer space. Uh, people have done, oh, no, the Vatican. That'd be great. <laughs> and it, you know, it was what was happening uh, in the Vatican as as uh, John Paul was, uh, you know, kind of lingering and stuff. Is that what kind of uh, inspired the film or, well, the, or the, the book? It, it had absolutely no bearing on it whatsoever. Okay. You know, we were planning on doing it anyway. And uh, that's what's so funny about it, really, is that we, you know, we... We didn't say, oh, wow, look, John Paul's dying, let's go do Revelation. We started Revelations <laughs> way before that. In fact, it's, it's so difficult to draw that we started it like two years ago plus. No? So at that time, he was in perfectly good health and riding around in his Pope mobile, I think, <laughs> or whatever it was he was doing. Did you have to study up then on uh, procedure in terms of Vatican City law? Yeah, 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 I did. Yeah, that was, uh, that was pretty interesting because... I'm a horrible pagan, so I didn't know anything about it. <laughs> I kind of sense a, a little bit of a cathartic uh, thrill in terms of, you're a guy that likes to question the establishment. And, and I think uh, in, in uh, Charlie Northern, you, you, you've got a character that I, I think seems like gives you the release to really get, get a few of your frustrations on, on institutions. Man. Well, actually, um, I do understand why it looks that way. But... Um, now, this is going to be very surprising to you and a little bit disappointing, I'm afraid, but actually quite the opposite. I'm really, I'm not a church girl or anything like that. Okay. Um, but Revelations, uh, I, I'd rather not spoil the way that it breaks down, certainly, but I, I think understand. I can say that Revelations uh, is, is, has a hope, kind of a surprising ending. You'd be surprised at where Charlie's attitude is taken okay. by the end of the series, you know? That's cool. Maybe it's not just cynicism, you know? That's cool. Well, uh, but, but at this point of the end of the uh, book, it is in issue four. He's very cynical. You know? Sure, sure. And uh, I, I, you know, there's almost a, there's a Hellblazer vibe to the story as well. And I and I don't mean that in terms of where I think you're you're repeating yourself, but it, it does kind of have that that vibe to it in terms of the you know the hard bitten kind of investigator. Yeah. Well, we wanted to do this one thing. I, I I was really intrigued with this, which is to take a detective who's paid to explain things in the very real-world terms, and then throw him in front of a, a, a place like the Vatican where things are not necessarily explained always in those kind of terms, you know? Sure. Um, so I might think it makes for a good story. I'm enjoying it, and Umberto is uh, doing another great job, and what an interesting style for this kind of story, too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's very time-consuming. We've uh, we talked about doing some more stuff like that. I love the covers, and I love that, that kind of, uh, I don't even know what the art style is. I mean, I think of things like I, Claudius, where it's got that ancient, you know, kind of uh, tile look or whatever, you know, painted tile. 
Yeah, yeah. That's yeah, beautiful. Yeah, so it's kind of a mosaic on the first there you uh, go. cover, yeah. Um, I'm also enjoying the Century's return. Mm-hmm. And uh, I have to ask, um, didn't it start out to be an eight-issue series, and now it's only six? Uh, no, no, it's always been eight. It, it is an eight, unless uh, if someone has uh, put six on it. It's probably a misprint because it's eight. Okay, good. Yeah. Well, I'm yeah. glad to hear that. Yeah. And, and without getting into spoilers, because the, the last issue is reasonably recent, uh, I love the dynamic between the Hulk and the Sentry. Yeah, poor old Hulk, huh? <laughs> <laughs> well, and you've really, without giving anything away, mm-hmm. you started one place in the original miniseries. Yeah. In, in terms of how people might view, it, it seems like the Sentry understands the Hulk, certainly in the first story. Well, I wanted to do this thing where the Hulk was this true tragedy, because it must be a very tragic thing, you know, to be to, to be sort of lost as a person, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, so the, the premise that we put forward, you know, we had this ability to be able to sort of take the Sentry, who um, was a character that we said had been around since just before the Fantastic Four. You know, he'd been published the week before or something like that. Yeah. Um, and I realize that fans get very upset about stuff like that if it's what they <laughs> what they call a retcon, you know, uh, sure. which I don't quite understand what, what a retcon is, except I know it's sort of rewriting history as established, yeah? That's it. But what we did, I hope, was we kind of said, look, you know, we're not really uh, contradicting things um, we're really establishing that his all, all of his own comics were his own, you know, Century, Golden Guardian of Good, uh, <laughs> whatever his startling stories, you know, all of these mythical comics that never happened. Um, we actually uh, reprinted, I did this one with Bill Sienkiewicz with Century and the Hulk, which is one of my favorite issues that we had done. And um, we said that we actually were reprinting the pages of Hulk number 7 through 10 because apparently they never existed. That's right. Uh, which is really funny because I, I hear stuff like that and... Uh, comic fan, fans uh, always think I'm being extremely reverent. Oh, wow, he printed the unknown lost <laughs> comics, you know. That's great. It was really a lot of fun. Um, but anyway, the premise that we sort of put forward was that Bruce Banner is a terrible tragedy because he, the reason he's the Hulk is that no one knows, and he's never been able to vocalize it, that his skin really hurts when he's the Hulk. But when he's around the golden man, as he calls the century, then his skin doesn't hurt as much. And so he feels a bit more docile, you know. And, and again, yeah, it's, I, I just love, too, the way that the century talks to the Hulk, too, and calls him Bruce and, yeah. and, and really does treat him almost like, like an older brother. Or, and, I, and I know in the current issue you even you know, refer to it as a father figure. Yeah, yeah. That, that yeah, it's like, you know, we're going to make you well. And, and even in that original story, I, I have to say, I really thought you hit a good emotional surprising chord where, yeah, he's like... You know, again, kind of pities the Hulk and says, "You know, man, we were so close. We were trying to make you well, and I'm, I'm back. And don't worry, I'm gonna, I'm gonna help you." Yeah, and the Hulk, the Hulk is now docile again around him. Mm-hmm. But the problem is that Hulk is, is kind of like a challenged seven, like a mentally challenged seven-year-old. Yes, you know? he's trying to prove him. Hey, buddy, <laughs> hey, Hulk done good, huh? You know? Exactly. Yeah, it's like, yeah. Uh, it's like of mice and men. He's Lenny. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, or, or, he, yeah. He's uh, I worked with learning disabled children when I first came to America, and. Um, I sort of can remember a lot of the stuff that they would do. Um, some of the autistic kids, and, and that would be, uh, if, if they were very, very mildly autistic, um, they, they'd seek a lot of validation always, you know. They'd, sure. uh, they'd be loyal, and they'd want to do stuff for, oh, I did good, yeah. Yeah, and, you, and again, without spoiling, you, you take it into a really neat direction, and, and that goes for the entire series. I think a lot of things that people might assume about the Century character are now being challenged in the new miniseries. Yeah, well, one thing I will say is that, um, and again, I, I know this doesn't really give anything away, but uh, hopefully it's a, a decent kind of teaser. Is, sure. Um, we put forward a, a premise in the first series that there was this big secret, and 
when you actually read it, you realize there was this ma massive secret, you know, that, that Robert Reynolds never really admitted that he was both the sentry and the void. He didn't remember, in a sense. You know? Right, right. So near the end of it, he, you find out that this guy is sort of destined to punch himself, punch his own lights out till the end of history, and he's going to destroy the human race in doing it. And it's so dangerous, you know, he's already like killed a million people in Manhattan in the past, and there's this terrible, terrible series of events. So the sentry being the perfect and sort of noble character he does, he actually kind of makes himself forget again. And then we come back to where we are right now, and he is, um, he is a sentry. Well, what you can see happening in this series is that they're beginning to get come some kind of sense that that secret itself, that the original secret, wasn't even the big one. There's something else going on. There's something to do with the sentry's origin. No one can quite remember what it is. No one can remember the professor and his secret formula. Like, there's these pieces that are missing. But they seem ultimately very important to the void who keeps sort of ruining his ugly head and so on. And when you find out what that secret is, I believe, uh, what do they say? It'll tear the internet in half. Yeah. <laughs> well, it'll tear in half. Let's not have any of that. <laughs> three, three neat pieces. Three neat pieces. Okay. I might actually go one better. It's tearing three pieces. You got a better bendis. I, I got better, better bendis. <laughs> you know, um, I was at your uh, writer's panel. Uh, at Wizard Chicago, mm -hmm. and uh, you mentioned Bendis, and it, you know it was—I guess it was Brian's panel technically, but it was you at Brubaker, Greg Rucka, and, and Brian. And I think that's great because uh, you guys really have a great way of, of communicating uh, the style of, of how you approach writing, and and also I—it seems like you guys do feed off of each other as well in terms of ideas and stuff. And it was nice, uh, and, and I know you've covered it in, in written interviews as well, that Brian did bring the Century back and, and allowed, you know, the idea that, hey, great, more Century stories, and, you know, I'm glad that they followed up then to give it back to you and, and you know, continue to follow through on the character. Because as much as people, as you say, don't like retcons, I think the Century is a, is a good exception because of the way you guys have executed this from the start. He's not a retcon. He is just sort of elaborating on some of the rich history of comics, in a sense, you know. Um, we, we, it, right from the, the get-go when I did the original series with Jay, what we pretended was that a lot of his memories, a lot of Robert Reynolds' memories, as he are done in sort of comic book form, so he'll have a memory of something he did as a century. The, 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 the longer ago that it took place, the, the more the older the comic style you know? yeah the simpler it gets the simpler yeah. the memory and the simpler the comic style yeah and then we got to do all these really funny things when we first brought the series out like uh, <laughs> we, you know we pretended that it was a real creation by Stan and it was drawn sure. by Artie Rosen which is great uh, all of this mad stuff you know but we, we managed to create this pretty rich history that doesn't exist in a sense century. <laughs> and um the great thing is that you know Brian and I are like really good friends we've, we've known each other for a long time uh, we remember when we both got really popular a few years ago, uh, we were sort of young up-and-coming writers, and we just looked at each other and went, this is impossible, you know, we've been in the business for, for 10, 15 years. You know, I hope uh, Brian, or really one of the newer Spider-Man writers, go back and uh, bring back some of your uh, supporting characters that you were able to throw out there in Spectacular, because uh, there were some interesting uh, people there that I wouldn't mind seeing come back into Spider-Man's life. Yeah, we had some, uh, in a sense, uh, when I very first took over Spider-Man, this is this is way back when I did it with Mark Buckingham. Mm -hmm. Ralph had actually been Ralph, the editor Ralph Macchio, mm -hmm. had been on me for a while and asked me if I would be interested in writing some Spider-Man. And, and I actually was very honest with him and said I don't even know what I would write. I mean, it took me maybe two years to get to write my first story, and then and then my first story was actually not in the pages of Peter Parker. It was um, Web Spinners. It was uh, it was basically sort of one and done, uh -huh. or three three issues actually and done. And the story I wrote was about 
how convoluted his his continuity was. It was really about that, right? And him stripping away layers so he could get to the meat of the person. And this was the the tragedy of Uncle Ben and Gwen Stacy, yeah? And once we kind of got into that, I'll, I'll get to my point in a second, because it always takes me a while, you know? Take your but, time. Um, <laughs> once we got into the meat of that, I began to realize that there were some things that were, were sort of missing at that moment in time. It was around about the year, sort of, 1999, 2000. One of them was, was this sort of loss of humor, you know, that that he used to be this really funny character. I remember when I was a kid, I used to laugh out loud because he'd do really funny things, yeah? Sure. And um, I found that he was really miserable and contemplate his navel art and, and you know but I didn't really feel sorry for him because it just that's all he did and if you don't have any humor and juxtapose against the tragedy then the tragedy means less I think so what we tried to do was to really sort of throw in some goofy stuff and once we got the chance to do spectacular and whether those characters lasted forever or not we had you know the sexy neighbor across the way yep. quite possibly an exotic dancer never really admitted to it um, the dog and the dog was called Barker, and he was, uh, he, he, you know, Peter just knew that this dog kind of guessed who he, his secret identity was. The dog didn't like him because his dog presumably didn't like spiders, you know. <laughs> and, and it was really funny because we did this one thing about uh, how the dog might possibly be building something over there, which was a joke. It was supposed to say, like, the dog's really intelligent, and maybe I hear all these noises when he goes in, and maybe he's building something. Oh, the fans, you know, people kept writing back to me and saying, like, when are you going to show the dog building something? You know, when's, when's the dog going to be more than it is? And I kept going, no, 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 it's just it's a dog. Right? It can be a dog. Right. <laughs> That's great, man. Yeah, yeah, we had a piece of cheese as well that was really popular called Kevin. Yes. A piece of Limburger in his thing, and he kept it as a science experiment. It was growing and growing mold. And, you know, there was actually going to be this one that I never got to where... Um, Spider-Man, I wrote the first issue, but I sort of never really got to do the art for it and everything, where Spider-Man eats a piece of the cheese by accident, and he goes nuts. He has, like, a hallucinogenic experience, <laughs> and he can't do his job. He's, like, tripping as he, as he flies around New York. I wonder why they didn't publish that one. Yeah, gee, I wonder. <laughs> That's great, man. Where are your writing uh, influences? Where do they come from? Hmm... I would say writers, because obviously, as a writer, everything yeah. influences you. So maybe uh, former... That's, that's right. Okay, you know, yeah, my answer was going to be that I'm so influenced by life, you know? Sure. I do not read a lot of books. I very rarely read comic books, except I kind of skim through the Marvel Universe. You know, I get the books every month, so I skim them to make sure I understand what's going on currently, you know? Sure, sure. Um, I never watch television. Um, I, watch, I watch, like, sports on television. Okay. And um, basically, I watch films, you know. Um, so, in a sense, my writing influences is difficult to say because as I grew up, I read a lot of science fiction, but I, I would put most of it down again. Larry Niven was someone that I would stay with, for instance, you know, okay. or, or okay. Isaac Asimov, a guy called Bob Shaw. You know, I liked those writers very much. Um, I thought they were incredibly interesting and intelligent people. And then as I grew up, you know, what, what would happen is I would often get really mad books that nobody else was sort of interested in. Um, and read those kind of things instead, you know. Um, it's difficult to say. It really is. Are you a news, uh, a news junkie? I mean, it's, it seems like you're, you're well-informed. Uh, we, we got into a very interesting uh, discussion at your writer's panel about uh, what was going on uh, with, the, with the London bombings and that, and, and really, mm -hmm. of course, became this whole discussion on the war on terror in general. Well, yeah, I try to be well-informed. Uh, one of the things that I really like to do and want to do is that if I write about something in a book, I will research the hell out of it, you know? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, so 
it's uh, it's something that I've said before, but it bears repeating. You know, when I did the Wolverine Origin, I was writing something about, you know, we knew it was set in Canada, and I wanted him to go to British Columbia from uh, wherever it was, Vancouver. No, he was he was going to Vancouver or something like that, and um, um, he began his journey in say Toronto, yeah, mm-hmm. and it was supposed to be set in 1873. And then I said, oh, you know what, I can't write this unless I know there was a railway that did that. <laughs> and so it took me like four or five hours, and I was on the phone with the Canadian Historical Railway Society. But it means something to me, and maybe it doesn't mean something to somebody else, but it really means something. I'm glad to see that finally they are paring down the universe, but when they say no more mutants and there's still 198, I, <laughs> while that is a, a kind of genocidal situation, from a comic book standpoint, it's like, well, that sounds like a lot of mutants still. Yeah, but, did anyone ever tell us why there were 198? <laughs> I don't think Joe Q has uh, Joe done that yet. Told, Joe never told me that, why there were 198. Why, why didn't he say, like, 407? <laughs> <laughs> I know. But I want to know, as far as Wolverine... I kind of feel bad that uh, while I understand it's an interesting plot point that now he remembers everything, it doesn't invalidate anything that happens. And sure, there are a lot of untold stories yet to be told. Was the idea that his healing power is the very reason why he can't remember anything, was yeah. that your idea? Um, wow. You know, uh, and I'm, I'm being dead honest here, I don't know. Did it come of that story? Was yes, that it came of that story, yeah. See, and I think that was such a brilliant twist to Wolver- of who Wolverine is and and now it's gone <laughs> you know um, well I mean you know how long do you do it for that's really the question I sure. know that um, I think at the time that we wrote the origin of Wolverine uh, you know people have to understand you know what was going on um, um, for all the bad press that Bill Jemis has got over the years mm-hmm. um, people should be somewhat thankful to him because you know in a sense Bill was great at um, bringing stuff back to the fore, you know. Mm-hmm. One of the things he brought back to the fore was Wolverine. Um, you know, we definitely, you know, the, the anecdote about us being at a, an editor's retreat and deciding this and all that kind of stuff is, is absolutely true. Okay. Know, we did that, and uh, Bill and I were talking about the origin of Wolverine and why we, why we couldn't do it, and my opinion was like, there's no reason not to do it, except everyone's afraid of doing it, et cetera, et cetera. Right? Sure. So, you know, we came up with this premise, and we... we worked really long and hard on it um, and then we got to write the book and etc etc but one of the reasons that we did it was because we kind of said in in all honesty how long can you uh, can you ride that horse you know how long can you say I can't remember well it's me I just can't remember I don't know where I came from right because after a while it gets a little bit boring I'm just not interested in that I don't see any reason to keep that one going right and that may be the way that they feel right now in a sense yeah fine let him remember let him remember his past let him you know we've been mining this one now for how how many years Uh, four years five years okay so let him remember some bits you know in a sense one of the things that we did everybody was just horrified that we were going to do Wolverine's origin because you're going to spoil the character he's going to remember well or we'll know you know and I think one of the things that we accomplished is that Instead of, every time we answered one question, we raised five new ones. Sure. Um, we kind of said in our series, why, where he came from, where he was born, who his father was, why he was called Logan, why he forgot. That's it. Right. No, and that's what I liked about it, because it did leave a lot of mysteries. There now is... they're exploring those mysteries, aren't they? I mean, I don't know if that's really a problem. I think uh, so I'll leave it in the hands of the people writing it and let them do the best they can to elaborate upon that i think you know 
people will be surprised. I think if we sort of get over our initial scepticism, because the scepticism is, is similar to the scepticism I had when I did The Origin of Wolverine, you can't really do that. And my answer is, I think you can, you know. No, and I think you're right. And I'm happy to, you know, wait and see how the stories unfold. And, uh, yeah, I mean, Daniel Way, we'll see, we'll see where he takes it. Yeah. Uh, he's got the current arc, obviously. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Have you discussed anything with him? Did he, did he come to you and say? Uh, no, not at all. Okay. Not at all, no. I'm, I'm quite happy to let people do their work, you know. I don't sure. feel like there's any need for someone to come and consult with me. Um, I do know that we've talked about Origin 2 uh, with Joe, and uh, at some point we'll do that. But I imagine that we won't do it soon because of what's going on in Wolverine. Okay. Let's get to Generation now. Again, I, I, I think it... it speaks well to you because it's it's your kind of book mm-hmm. where you know you're telling the the little stories and what's happening on the street after after in the aftermath of a big event what what is your take on i i know that uh adventures disassembled uh I, I think you had to do a few stories with spider-man uh to conform to the the big uh crossover but what is your take in general in terms of of working on these big uh publishing-wide crossovers like this? Well, um, you take a look at Generation M, it's great for me because I don't have to actually work on the crossover stuff. It has absolutely nothing to do with it whatsoever. Uh, I've been given a couple of rules by the ex-office, which is uh, here are the characters that have been depowered. Um, here's what happened. Go ahead, you know. Sure. That's it. And uh, it's, <laughs> it's much better to do that with me um, you know, I've talked about it before about how difficult it was for me to do the disassembled stuff because I think with all the best intentions in the world, the guys at Marvel sort of came to me and said, hey, Paul, you know, we want you to write this kind of organic web shooter stuff, and <laughs> I wasn't good at it. I'm terrible at it. You know, they, they need to get someone else to do that because I'm, I'm just not good at it. And uh, I gave it a shot, and I can read those six issues of Spider-Man and go, oh, what a shame. You know, I, I, <laughs> I feel like I wrote a lot of really good ones, and... Um, those six were not so good because I was struggling to find a way. In a sense, not a lot of my writing style came out in those stories. It was no, just something that sort of happened, you know, and, and it was supposed to justify some event. And I've always railed against that kind of thing anyway. I've always said, I don't think there's any point in doing that. I, I really want to tell stories about people, you know. Yeah, and, and again, given that opportunity in this Generation M, um, I like I like the Sally Floyd character. I like the fact too that she comes from the little alternative newspaper. I, <laughs> yeah, I've yeah. known a I've known a handful of Sally Floyds in in, in my life. Yeah, and uh, I, I think I think it's a it's a neat starting point. Have you ever yourself ever worked for one of the alternate papers like that? No, no, no. But I've actually uh, lived in a couple of really funky alternative towns, especially <laughs> in Northampton. Okay, uh, I knew a couple of people that worked at those newspapers, etc. And um, it's very interesting. It's um, you know, Sally's quite a, a character that came alive very quickly. You know, she, once we started writing her, um, you could see that she's kind of flawed, but she's doing her best, and she has this terrible tragedy in her life. And I think that her arc in Generation M is really the arc that people will care about, and that's the whole point of doing it, isn't it, you know? Absolutely. Um, we, we'll care about the mutants, we'll care about what's happening to them. You'll find some very surprising takes on what it must mean. I hope they're surprising. Anyway, you know, what it must mean to lose your power. Um, because we have some really interesting ideas that, that are not necessarily obvious, and I think that's a good way to go, you know? No, I'm looking forward to it. I enjoyed the first issue. The second issue is coming out this Wednesday. Had current events of, of you know, it's funny, in, in reading some articles uh, about Generation M, you mentioned things like comparing uh, what's happening with the mutants to what's happening to New Orleans. I saw, I saw a reference yeah. like that. And, and yeah, I wonder if, if current events are, are kind of... 
feeding how you're how you're treating this in terms of this journalist going after a tragedy and, and following these people yeah. well um yes and no i mean one thing that uh, often amazes me but i guess i understand why it happens is is people um for instance if i write a char character like sally floyd uh she's relatively kind of alternative isn't she you know she's, <laughs> she's a relatively left-wing kind of liberal girl right sure. um but people just assume that i'm using it as my soapbox you know uh I, you know if i write a character that character isn't necessarily me it's just the character that i'm writing and uh so yes it's true that i do want to write about what's happened in new orleans i, I kind of want to write about the less obvious aspects of people in our society that are that have difficulties, you know, uh, if somebody's uh, physically handicapped, if somebody's mentally handicapped, if mm -hmm. somebody is a minority, right? Um, if somebody is is gay, for instance, yeah? Yes. Um, I've, I've got gay friends, and one of the things that I really don't like doing with my gay friends is always talking about gay things. Right. Um, in a sense, <laughs> we feel as though our friends are defined by the fact that they're gay or the fact that they're in a wheelchair, and, and that's the thing that we approach them with. And, you know, I've got a, a mate of mine that lives around the corner, and he's in a chair, and I've got to tell you right now, I don't know why he's in a chair. I never asked him. And then one day, if he wants to tell me, great. But at the moment, what we'll do is say hi and be friendly. You know? Sure. In a sense, I think we sort of brought some of that feeling to, uh, to Generation M, that she's really commenting on what's going on. She has her own opinion about the way things are, and she obviously fights against the mutant registration guy and all that kind of stuff. Um, but she'll work her own way through it. You know, No one's going to tell her how to write her column. Well, I mean, they can try, but she'll break their neck. You know? <laughs> <laughs> no, I, would, I enjoyed the, the first chapter, and again, I'm, I'm looking forward to yeah, seeing what other mutants still having their powers or those that don't. Yeah, I got a chance to do a couple of mutants as well. You know, I mean, some of those 198 are in mine. You know? That's true. Yes, that's right. I'd like watch. Yeah, yeah. Well, and again, it's it's the big event, but it's the street-level view. Like, And I've seen you, you even refer to this series kind of like Marvel's, but very different. In that, you know, certainly Sally Floyd is a lot different than Phil Shelton was. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it's um, it's kind of like Marvels in the sense that it's somebody commenting on the amazing world around them. And the great thing is, that, you know, we get to bring Sally into the pulse, which is hilarious because they've basically sort of given me the keys to the castle and said you can write any story about anybody oh, at cool. any time. You know. Well, that's cool. And yeah, she is she is very anti Daily Bugle and and you know your your typical Marvel journalist Ben Urich and and Cat uh, is it Cat. I'm trying to remember Bill Roseman's uh, Deadline character. Oh, I can't remember. <laughs> and, and certainly, and certainly, well, Jessica, she's got a little Jessica in her, actually. Uh, I suppose so, yeah. She's no, a, lot of, a lot of times people say, I want Jessica, I want Jessica, I don't want this Sally Floyd person. It's, like, it's okay, hold on, you know, read it, it'll be okay. <laughs> What's happening with Marvel Myths? Yeah, the book, uh, the book is actually called Mythos. Oh, and, Mythos, excuse um, me. What we're doing is we are approaching this, this series in a way that was somewhat similar to the Origin series, um, the Wolverine Origin series. We're taking each of the individual sets of characters, um, might be the X-Men or the Hulk or whatever, and we're trying to find a way that we can take, usually, Stan's origin and in some ways update it, in some ways kind of cross-pollinate it with, with the movie version or the TV version or something like that. So that what you can do for Marvel's intents and purposes, you can take the characters out to the audience that currently knows them, because the audience don't know them from reading books now. They know it from watching the Spider-Man movie, and say, hey, here's the origin of this character, and it's fully painted. 
Um, I've got to tell you, it's one of the most difficult comics that I've ever written. I've done two of them now, and they are incredibly difficult. They're just, it's just such a labor of love. By the time that Paolo and I have finished eight of them, uh-huh. I think we'll just be ready to retire. <laughs> this, is, this is cool, though. I'm looking forward to it. And I also like the fact, too, and, and it's, it's kind of a hallmark of, of your style, too, where they are, uh, while they will be collected, they are one and done. And each can be enjoyed separately, and then also enjoyed in the full volume if, if people want to grab the full That's volume. That's right. Of I mean, the way it was the way it was put to me by Joe was that the, what they would love to do one day, Marvel, is to be able to hand anybody this big hardcover collected edition and say. These are the origins of our characters. Tell me about the Darkness uh, video game deal that's coming up. Uh, let's see. Well, you know, over the years I've done a couple of video games. I'm really getting into them. Uh, yeah. I'm actually writing more of the video games nowadays, and uh, I think it's really interesting. I think it's a form of storytelling, just like comics, that gets absolutely no respect whatsoever, but is going to get more respect as time goes by. I agree completely. And, you know, one of the difficulties in telling a story this way using a video game is the story is, is much more reflective of the player than it is of the writer. So you can change your story because of the way that you play it. If you're an aggressive player, let's say playing the Hulk game I did, right? Right. If you're an aggressive player, you, then you, you become aggressive Hulk. If you're a timid player, you become timid Hulk or clever <laughs> Hulk or something like that. And okay. that's, that's the character that then you tell the story with, right? So you have to adapt to that as a writer and try to encompass all of those possibilities. And the people in the video game industry have long since learned you can never cover all the bases. Yeah, it sounds like you do have to write on, on various levels then as far as uh, story. And, and, and that, yeah, try and cover every contingency. You also have to, um, you have to kind of react to lots of different arbitrary things that happen as you develop in a game. For instance, uh, the video game publishers, uh, the, sorry, the, the developers, as they're working on the video game, the technology might change right in the middle of it. And I sure. get a call and say, we've just learned that we can do this or that. That's going to change the way that we present this particular scene or this particular emotion or something like that. And I go, oh, great. Okay, fine. Let me go and adapt the entire thing that we've written and do it again. You know, sometimes I ask questions. Is it possible to do this? And the question that I'm asking is going to literally cost them $750,000. And the answer is no, we can't. We can't do that. You, you know, you, you cannot write that into the story. So it's very, very interesting, and I've learned a lot. It's just kind of like writing a jigsaw puzzle. It's just really cool. Um, hopefully, you know, we've, we've obviously had some success with the Hulk franchise. Yes. Um, I know that we kind of took that from something that was not doing so well, and the current version of the Hulk, the one that came out, uh, you know, a few months ago, is doing really well. Um, people are enjoying playing it and having a lot of fun. And so currently I'm on the darkness um, I would have said yesterday, I would have said that was with Majesco, except apparently some of the fans online wrote to me and said that Majesco sold it. <laughs> oh. <laughs> so uh, it's for whomever, you know. Well, that, you know, it's. I like the fact that you're embracing this new form of storytelling because I do think things are changing. Yeah. And, and yeah, I, I think the the people... Uh, first of all, happy birthday, by the way. I know oh, you, thank you. you. Yeah, that's nice. You just turned 40 and... Uh, yeah, I just turned 40. That's frightening. Well, <laughs> but isn't it interesting that, that people younger than us... I'm 41. Um, there are young adults that obviously are playing uh, these games, and I think the, the, ch- the children that are younger than them are going to continue to play these games as adults as well. So yeah. it's so it's neat that I, I think you and, and Brian are, are kind of 
not on the ground floor, but I guess it is in terms of the, the current innovations in games that you're going to grow with these audiences and, and you know, make more sophisticated stories. Because yeah. I agree with you. I, I think this is just beginning, and it's, it's only going to get more interesting, and, and the games are going to get more sophisticated in their storylines. Very much so. Um, we, we are very much on the ground floor, I believe. I had a really interesting couple of conversations about this with various people, and, and one of the things that became obvious was that we... Are sort of inventing ways to write comic, uh, to write video games. Yes. Now. No one has a template for them. We're all sort of making them up as we go along, and it's really interesting to do. You know, it's just, it's fabulous, really, because it's just again, it's like being given the keys to the castle of an entire industry. <laughs> go ahead, <laughs> take it out yeah. for a test drive, see what you can do, sort of thing. You know. Yes. Yeah, why some not? Of the things, some of the things that we're doing right now with the darkness. Um, the people who are uh, the developers are um, the guys who did uh, Chronicles of Riddick video game, which which was really popular. Okay. So we're working really hard on, on making it, in a sense, a very unique game. It's not aimed at children. There's swearing all over it, and you know, <laughs> it's a mafia-based video game. It's, sure. a, it's such a lot of fun, and uh, I think that when people see that, they will begin to see, and they, well, no, they, you know, I'm not going to say it's our game that did it, but they're, they're beginning to see a real shift in the way that games are presented. They're, that you know, Just like films are not all made for children, neither are video games. You know. Absolutely. I think that's fantastic. Are there ideas that you have that uh, would be purely game-oriented that, you know, as far as a story that, you know, couldn't be achieved then in a comic book? I, I would say this. I, I can't really talk about it too much because, as you've seen in the Newsarama column that I do, um, yes. the, uh, the video game industry uh, <laughs> is, uh, is uh, as I said, it was built on the twin foundations of uh, paranoia and losing money. You know? <laughs> um, Yes, there are lots of stuff, uh, ideas that I have, and I'm talking with various people about actually making those a reality um, right now, especially on the heels of the Hulk, Hulk success. So, you know, I believe that one of the things that's going to happen to me in the next few years, um, well, I have three jobs, you know, I do comic books, I do film, and I do video games. Uh -huh. I'm going to be hopefully creating some brand new IPs for video games and doing those. That's great, man. And your and your production company is Good Cop, Bad Cop. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, uh, well, the reason I, the reason it's Good Cop, Bad Cop, I do it with uh, a good friend of mine, Rob Pryor, who's out of Los Angeles. He's uh, he lives there, so he takes the brunt of all the stuff that we have to deal with, you know. And uh, Rob's a really good guy. He's a very talented airbrush artist. He worked on Buffy. He did a lot of creature design in the last season, et cetera, et cetera. Right. Cool. So uh, Rob's mean, and I'm really nice. <laughs> <laughs> So okay. we're good cop, bad cop for that reason, you know. And uh, we've been we did a music video last year for this band Scum of the Earth. Um, <laughs> it was it was our first and last music video because I said I will never do I'll never work with those musicians again ever. I mean, <laughs> what is wrong with these people? We we showed up on set on the last day um, of shooting and we had, we were crashing a car and doing all this other kind of stuff and. There were four members of the band, and only two of them showed up to that shoot. And they sort of wandered in and said, actually, we'd really rather go to that strip club down the road. And um, I'm, I'm really quite nice. You know, there's a whole point. I'm good cop. I'm really nice. But I actually went in search of a singer because I wanted to punch his lights out. <laughs> I was so disgusted that they could take people's time and effort and have 70 people waiting around on a set. 
for them and they couldn't be bothered. Now, you yeah. see, a younger person would say that showing your age, Paul, but unfortunately, I, I understand what you're talking no, about. No, 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 because, you know, the people... You, you, <laughs> sure. Okay, let, let's, in, in the what was this final town, they're currently residing in the Where Are They Now file. <laughs> you know, well, they're not doing anything. And, you know, why they're not doing anything? Because they don't have what it takes to actually make the, the business work. You know, you have to, you know, you, people may make fun of, say... I don't know, Britney Spears, right? I right. can tell you one thing. Britney Spears probably works really hard at keeping and maintaining Britney Spears' you know, brand. Well, no, I understand that. I wonder if um, your, again, going back to your beginnings, the fact that you did handle the business end for the Turtles, yeah. I I is that informing uh, what you're doing now? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it changed. It, it, it probably influences the way that I write more than, say, a book, you know, about more than an author. Because, because if you understand that you're writing for business, that this is not... People may love my books, right? But if they didn't sell, I wouldn't be writing for very long. You know? Sure. So you have to understand that handing scripts in on time as best you can, um, all that kind of stuff, it just... Why does it make it easier for your publisher? You know, if you do that kind of thing and you generally have a modicum of talent and a level of success and you hand them in on time and you care about your craft, but you also care about your publisher's needs, you're going to be doing this for quite some time. And I learned that a long time ago. But the reason that I decided to become a freelance writer was because I was just working with various people that I knew were phoning it in. It was, it was sort of on the heels of the 90s boom, and I just felt that people had arrived at a point where they, they weren't telling a story. They were throwing a comic book in and seeing if it's stuck on the wall. And if it's <laughs> stuck on the wall, they'd get you know, so many tens of thousands of dollars for writing it. And it was very frustrating to watch, you know? So, yeah, you saw them kind of being herky-jerky, and it's like, yeah, if they had just put a little discipline behind their writing and stuff, they would make even more money and be more successful. Yeah, so, of course, I decided to become a freelance writer just when comics collapsed. <laughs> <laughs> All I've been involved with is, um, is, is sort of reviving the industry, and it's still partly reviving it will never be back to the way thank god it will never be back to the way it was at the early 90s you know yeah no kidding no although it seems like with variant covers and all the gimmicks you know it's funny paul it seems almost like that the the big publishers didn't learn that lesson of the 90s no, i hope they did I, I i would imagine they did because because and you know you're you're closer to the the palace than i am so yeah that's that's my concern when i do see variant cover after variant cover it's like uh, haven't we been here before and didn't this cause a lot of problems yeah, one of the things that, you know, that it's made me do is uh, I, as you know, um, with, with my wife uh, being pregnant now, yes, um, I, I signed a, an exclusive with Marvel, and Marvel were very cool about allowing me to kind of finish some of the uh, original properties that I had elsewhere, you know. Um, in a sense, as long as I will fulfill the terms of my contract and deliver 24 books, I think it is, a year, um, then they were quite happy for me to sort of finish up bits and pieces of other stuff that I do. And so that has become very important to me, you know, in a sense, not necessarily just falling into the trap of the whims of the comic industry. If, if we do go up and down, if it goes really down, it's okay because I'll be working in video games and, sure. and doing films. And um, a lot of the original ideas that I have, whether they be for video games or films, are things that I'm doing um, in, uh, in comics. Um, an example of which is I got this uh, really cool comic that I'm going to be doing with Desperado. It's something that I planned on doing for the last couple of years, and I finally got to do it. Uh, Desperado Publishing is a little publisher out here in uh, in Atlanta, and I've known Joe Pruitt, the publisher, for a really long time. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, so I'm doing this uh, comic book called Sidekick, and it's basically about this mild-mannered pizza delivery boy called Eddie. And he uh, he 
is a superhero sidekick to this absolute moron of a superhero. <laughs> and he decides that he can't make any money doing it, so he decides to be a superhero, to uh, a sidekick to four superheroes at the same time to make some money, right? Okay. And it's just this horrible comedy of errors. And the funny thing about it is everyone in Los Angeles and lots of people, you know, um, it's difficult to say that anything's going to happen, but in a sense, everyone who hears that in L.A., goes, oh, I want that, I want that, I want that, right? <laughs> well, guess what? You can't have it because it exists as a comic book. You know, it's being published. It's already, some of the art's already done. It's already trademarked and copyrighted. In a sense, you can't steal it. Good luck. <laughs> um, but we, you know, one of the reasons for me maintaining that kind of stuff and doing video games and films is because you never know with the comic industry. I mean, I really feel that it's quite healthy now compared to the way it was 10 years ago. Sure. But that doesn't mean to say that it's going to continue to be healthy if wacky decisions are made about how to market it and promote it. And I hope we don't go back to that collectible cover mentality, you know? No, it, and it sounds like you're, you're being shrewd and then keeping your options open, and yeah. I, I think that's great, and seeing success in those other options as well. So yeah. I look forward to the progress of the movie and, and also the video games as well. I'm digging the stories that are going on right now in uh, Generation M, The Century, and Revelation. So uh, I appreciate your time today. Okay, you are welcome. That's Paul Jenkins. Make sure you check out his column at newsarama.com, Flogging a Dead Horse. And that'll do it for this edition of WordBalloon.com. Thanks a lot for listening. This is John Suntress. Make sure you keep checking back at WordBalloon.com for more updates on new episodes. WordBalloon is a copyrighted feature of Shaky Productions. Copyright 2005.